Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. It's 1926, and you're in a mine cage, a type of elevator contraption that slowly descends down the shaft of a coal mine. The air gets colder and colder as the light disappears from above, and you are plunged into darkness, lit only by a single dim bulb attached to your helmet. The dank air feels cool and smells like dirt and wetness. Even with this silly breathing tube contraption you've got on your face, you can still smell the mine. You do this descent daily, and the innate panic your body's defense mechanisms should kick on as you plunge into the depths is only a whisper now. This is just a routine trip for you, checking the air quality before your crewmates head down. You chuckle as you think what Millie, your wife, would say if she saw you in this getup. There are leather straps with two buckles holding two metal and canvas tubes against your mouth. The tubes run along each side of your head, draping over each shoulder and connecting to a big, hard yellow backpack attached to your shoulders with more straps. This thing will keep you breathing if things go south down there, or if Tweety here starts acting a little kooky. Looking down at the small box you are carrying, you smile at your little buddy, a small yellow bird named Seymour. Contemplating such a serious name for such a small, insignificant animal, you hung a tomb as the steel wire rope lowers your cage further down and down into the depths. But little chirping Seymour is not insignificant. That bird will save your life and the lives of hundreds of others down in these mines. Finally, the creaking cage comes to a stop at the bottom of the shaft. You set Seymour's little cage down for a minute and heave the squeaking metal gate aside. Picking up Seymour, you step out onto the slick ground. Humming with him as he chortles in the small cage you carry him in, you walk towards the end of the tunnel to begin your shift. The term canary in a coal mine is ubiquitous for any early warning signal. Like our fictional vignette of a miner carrying a canary into the coal mine, canaries were often taken into mines during the first part of the 20th century to test the air for poisonous gases. 
The practice was so commonplace that it's become a cliché. The canary in the coal mine is now a metaphor for something horrible about to happen, whether it be a financial crisis, a world health issue, or the whims of fashion. Metaphors aside, canaries are a sentinel species, used by humans to detect environmental risks by providing advanced warning of a danger. Often animals are used as sentinels because they are more susceptible to environmental hazards than humans may be in the same environment. In the case of coal mining, canaries, or really any small bird, are very susceptible to changes in air quality because of their rate of respiration, anatomy, and their small size. Contrary to popular belief, canaries in coal mines do not have a very long history. They were only used as sentinel animals in British and American coal mines for roughly 100 years. In the grand scheme of things, that's not a long time at all. Yet, canaries have become a universal symbol within mining in general and as a figure of speech. I'm Marissa. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Welcome back, listeners. We want to thank you all for subscribing and supporting us over the last five years. Our Patreon supporters keep this history excavation team digging, and we owe the most to our fabulous auger and excavator level patrons. Lauren, Edward, Iris, Denise, Susan, Agnes, Peggy, Colin, Maddie, Maria, Jesse, and Hannah. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of this show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. So we're doing this animal series at the behest of Marissa. Us dig ladies were all in Boston at the Organization of American Historians Convention, and M had the bright idea of doing animals for our next series. And I thought, mm, okay. Uh, Needless to say, I wasn't a fan, and I didn't know what the hell I was going to write an episode about animals about. However, I am planning a trip to Disney World, and one of our favorite rides is Thunder Mountain. This is a roller coaster that is mining-themed, and the interactive queue has some kind of cool, you know, interactive doohickeys. So, like, you get to press some TNT boxes and water blows up out on the, the, the track. There's also these contraptions that have a handle, and if you turn it, you might see a canary inside that's about to go down into the mine. Um, and so it's, it's, just, it's a really fun kind of inter- interactive queue line. And with vacation on my mind, I thought, hey, I'll do an episode on canary in a coal mine. Now, full disclosure, I try to write episodes that I can use in my classes, and I need a good mining and labor lecture, and so I figured I'd write an episode all about mining in America and just throw in the canaries for good measure. However, 
When I actually got to researching this podcast episode, I realized that mining labor history books don't really talk about canaries and coal mines. Searching through all of my go-to mine and labor books, I didn't find one that mentioned canaries in coal mines, which frankly I thought was kind of weird. Or if books did mention a canary, it was just that, a mention, with no explanation or context. And so then I went to the Google machine and I got a lot of weird hits. I read some blog posts. I watched a few YouTubes. And I realized that there's just not much peer-reviewed work about this subject, at least in academic historical sense. Sure, there are a lot of blogs and amateur history sites that kind of brush over the subject, but not much I could really count on when I'm specifically talking about canaries in coal mines. Um, So let me give you an example. Anecdotally, many websites said canaries were used in coal mines in the 1800s, and a lot of these sources share a picture of Little Joe. Little Joe is a deceased canary encased behind glass inside a wooden coffin-shaped box. Uh, The inscription on the front of the box says, In memory of Little Joe, died November 3rd, 1875, aged three years. And I found multiple websites and even one peer-reviewed article in a veterinary journal that said Little Joe is an example of a beloved coal mine canary. However, Little Joe died 20 years before canaries were officially used in coal mines. There's also no indication on his little coffin that he was used in a mine, just that he was someone's beloved bird. So as I researched and wrote this episode, I really learned a lot about mining science, particularly in regards to respiration. But I also witnessed how one wrong statement can be picked up over and over again and and touted as fact uh, on the Internet, but sometimes even in academic journals. Mm hmm. 100%. I noticed this when I did my episode on um, human typologies and Sarky Bartman. Mm -hmm. There's like like almost nothing written about Sarky Bartman on the internet is actually accurate, <laughs> but it's all over. Yeah. Okay. The earliest known mine is the Nguenya Mine located near the northwestern border of Eswatini, which is Swaziland. Radiocarbon dating shows that humans were mining red and specular hematite, which can be made into paint for body modification and rituals as long as 40,000 years ago during the Middle Stone Age. In later times, the deposit was mined for iron smelting and iron ore export. In the Americas, the Spanish imprisoned America's indigenous peoples to mine silver in Peru, present-day Bolivia, and Mexico. The mining and exporting of silver, copper, and gold in the Americas was a key component of Spain's American empire and for a time made Spain the richest and most powerful state in early modern Europe. However, the manpower needed to dig and extract those resources was achieved by brutal working conditions for indigenous Indians and imported African slaves. So even though mining seems to be an ancient human practice, coal mining is a phenomenon connected with the Industrial Revolution. There are a few coal mines dating back to ancient China and the Roman Empire, but the massive commercial production of coal that we are familiar with is tied to the industrialization of the West during the 19th and 20th centuries. 
For example, Americans doubled their use of coal every decade during the mid to late 19th century, and by 1900, coal provided 70% of the nation's power. These numbers were similar for the UK. In Britain, deep shaft coal mining began to develop extensively in the late 18th century, with rapid expansion throughout the 19th century and early 20th century. Shaft mining is the excavation of a mine shaft from the top down. In 1862, at the Hartley Colliery in Northumberland, England, a horrible accident caused the shaft to become blocked, trapping and killing 204 men and children in the depths of the mine. Most appeared to have died from asphyxiation. This prompted a British law requiring all collieries, or what they call mines, to have two points of escape. All mining is dangerous, but coal mining has particular safety issues that must be contended with. Coal mining releases methane, known to the miners as fire damp, which is highly explosive under certain concentrations. Coal dust was even more dangerous, which could cause an explosion that could be triggered by fire damp ignition. These explosions consume oxygen in the mine and leave behind a toxic combination of odorless carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide known as afterdamp. Many explosions were caused by miners' lamps igniting the fire damp. Before battery-operated light bulbs, miners often carried open flames into mines as their only source of light. They might have candles or a hanging lamp that they placed on the ground or they stuck into crevices. After roughly 1850, miners wore cloth or canvas hats that had a leather brim and metal brackets on the forehead where a miner could hang a small lantern from the front of the cap. Early versions of these lamps were created in Scotland around 1850 and looked like small tea kettles with a spout. The body of the lamp held oil and a flame could be ignited at the spout. These oil wick cap lamps gave off just enough light for miners to see what was directly in front of their face, but not much else. And they were also extremely smoky and sooty. In 1820, Sir Humphrey Davy invented the Davy safety lamp when he discovered that surrounding a flame with metal mesh prevented the combustion of the flame and surrounding gas. Safety lights were large and a bit cumbersome, so were not hung from a cap, but were carried by hand into a mine. They served as both a dim light and as a detection mechanism as gases in the air would make the flame in the lamp flare up but not ignite. This could alert miners to a fire damp area and they could evacuate. However, illumination from these lamps was very poor and often miners preferred a more open flame so that they could see what they were doing and frankly make their day's wages. Since most miners were paid by what they were able to dig up, sometimes safety had to be put by the wayside. Invented around 1910, the carbide lamp provided a bit more light to miners. This lamp was also suspended from the brim of the miner's cap, but it used acetylene gas, which burned brighter and more cleanly than the oil wick lamps. Carbide lamps also normally had a reflector attached, which provided more light for the miner to see. However, both of these cap lamps still used an open flame as a light source and were therefore very dangerous to use in methane-producing mines. It's like wild that they even continued to do this because it's like so there's so many like reasons not to not to do this. (laughs) Right. Capitalism and, you know, 
the industrial revolution i know oh my gosh it's just wild cogs in the machine man Mm mm-hmm In the 1910s, electric light mining helmets began to be used more and more, eliminating some of the dangers that miners faced. Nevertheless, the job was still very dangerous, and thousands of men and boys died in mining accidents throughout the 20th century. Besides explosions, a real risk to miners and coal mines was asphyxiation by poisonous gases. In 1892, physiologist J.S. Haldane began to experiment with breathable air and respiration. He determined that black damp, which had been thought to be purely carbon dioxide, was actually a mixture of about 87% nitrogen and 13% carbon dioxide, and was the residue left when the oxygen of air, which had penetrated into the coal, had been absorbed in the spontaneous oxidation of the coal. Uh, Haldane demonstrated that breathing is regulated by changes in the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood. Through more experiments, Haldane became deeply committed to solving mining safety issues while also determining to understand human respiration when exposed to chemicals and gases. I learned a little bit about respiration when my baby was in the NICU and she had like really fast respiration rate. So she was like, <laughs> even though her oxygenation was a hundred percent, her respiration rate was still really high. And I was like, why would she be breathing like that if she is getting enough air? You know what I mean? And they told me it's because she has too much carbon dioxide mm-hmm. in her blood mm-hmm. and that triggers your lungs to just go <laughs> Even if, like, even if you have enough oxygen as well. That's you know what crazy. I mean? It's such a weird thing. Yeah. Um, so Haldane soon turned his attention towards carbon monoxide poisoning in mines. Carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless, and tasteless gas that easily binds to the hemoglobin in blood that can build up in the body and cause death. It's also a product of blasting or present in afterdamp after a gas or coal dust explosion or in the aftermath of a mine fire. In 1894, Haldane visited the Albion Colliery after a horrendous explosion there and determined that of the 54 bodies recovered from the mine, only four had died from the immediate explosion. He determined the other 50 succumbed to carbon monoxide poisoning because of the high degree of carbon monoxide in their bloodstream. Because of the high saturation in their bloodstream, Haldane determined the miners must have remained alive for a considerable amount of time after the explosion, breathing in the afterdamp. In 1895, Haldane published a paper on the effects of carbon monoxide inhalation. Haldane spent the next several years determining how carbon monoxide kills human beings. He performed dangerous experiments on himself, breathing several toxic gases in self-experimentation. He chronicled the ways in which his own body reacted to varying degrees of carbon monoxide poisoning. From these experiments, he created a test that allowed for determining the level of saturation of the blood with carbon monoxide. And I'm just going to give you an aside. There is a 2007 book uh, written by journalist Martin Goodman, uh, and it's written for general audiences about Haldane's self-experimentation. Uh, the book's called Suffer and Survive, Gas Attacks, Miners, Canaries, Spacesuits, and the Bends, The Extreme Life of Dr. J.S. Haldane. 
Um, I was unable to read this book because according to WorldCat, there were no U.S. libraries near me that had a copy. Only Canadian libraries had them, um, the closest being in Toronto. Um, it's also not available on Kindle or ebook. I did, however, read a few reviews on the book, mostly from scientific journals. And although these reviews said that the book was fun and looking at Haldane's kind of crazy self-experimentation, it did get a lot of the science wrong. But I just want to throw it out there. Like this J.S. Haldane guy sounds kind of amazing and, and he could probably have his, his whole, his own episode. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, you know, you might want to search that book out. In 1896, Haldane submitted a report to the British Home Secretary where he suggested that miners should bring a small animal into the mines, like a mouse, because they have a high relative metabolism and will exhibit effects of carbon monoxide poisoning sooner than humans would. The report was immediately translated into several languages and caused quite a buzz. Soon, miners in the UK were routinely taking canaries into mines as a safety precaution. A 1906 newspaper article from the Nottingham Evening Post chronicled the use of a canary after a mine explosion. Quote, When the rescue party descended the mine, a canary in a cage was kept in front and dropped off its perch when the danger point was reached, overcome by the poisonous atmosphere. This is a new use for the canary and it is satisfactory to know that the bird recovered from the effects of the afterdamp and was produced at the inquest, end quote. The use of canaries proved so useful that in 1911, the Coal Mines Act was passed in the UK, which required miners to take two small caged birds into the mine with them. As far as I can tell, there were no such laws in the U.S. that required miners to take canaries or other small birds into the mine. However, there are plenty of photographs of U.S. miners with canaries. So there may have been a law, I just wasn't able to find it. Additionally, the U.S. Bureau of Mines endorsed the use of canaries as a safety precaution, stating in 1914 that canaries were the best animals to do this kind of work. Quote, the usefulness of small animals in detecting vitiated air in mines is well established. The U.S. Bureau of Mines has experimented with most of the more common small animals, such as canaries, guinea pigs, rabbits, chickens, dogs, mice, and pigeons, and find that canaries or mice are the most suitable for the work. Of the two, the Bureau finds canaries to be the most sensitive. If handled intelligently in rescue operations, they rarely die as a result of their exposure to carbon monoxide. Um, we've also linked a short video clip from 1926 that was produced by the U.S. Bureau of Mines, touting how canaries are used as carbon monoxide detectors. Mining rescue teams would keep several canaries on hand, and in the event of an explosion or fire, rescuers would descend into the mine and carry a canary in a small wooden or metal cage. If the bird showed any signs of agitation or lethargy, this was a clear sign that all was not right and prompted a speedy return to the surface. When canaries are exposed to toxic gases, particularly carbon monoxide, they initially become highly agitated, flapping and jumping around their cage. In extreme conditions, they may faint and fall off of their perch. The bird's rapid heart rate and high metabolism allow it to react to the presence of carbon monoxide or methane about 20 minutes before a miner's body is affected by the gas. Canaries' particularly small size and rapid metabolism, coupled with an incredibly efficient respiratory system, make them an ideal bird for such work. 
All birds possess a paleopalmo system that makes up 75 to 100% of lung capacity. This system allows continuous airflow through the lungs, meaning that air enters the lungs on both inspiration and expiration. Additionally, in avian lungs, the blood capillaries are arranged perpendicular to the walls of air capillaries, creating a gas exchange system that allows birds to extract oxygen very efficiently. This, from what we understand, is what makes birds extremely sensitive to poisonous gases in the air. But why canaries? Why not parakeets or finches? Uh, Researcher for Gale Primary Sources, Amelie Bonney, found a 1926 article out of Dundee, Scotland, that said that wild red pole birds were used for mining over canaries because they are, uh, quote, more active and more sensitive to the effects of gas than cage-bred birds, end quote. However, in photo after photo, it's canaries pictured in the cages. And so I wonder if this was just a a fluke or, you know, like a regional mine or something like that. However, the same article goes on to say how red poles were collected for mining use. They were, uh, they were, quote, caught by bird catchers all over the country and were supplied to mining operations through the bird markets. Uh, Veterinarian Crystal Pollock states that mining companies in the UK purchased canaries from ordinary pet shops, usually ones with poor coloration or other such imperfections that made them less desirable on the pet market. Also, apparently, some mining companies built aviaries and bred their own birds for mine use. The U.S. Bureau of Mines stated that canaries are, quote, generally easily obtainable and become pets of the men who have them. So it's the ugly canaries. Oh, <laughs> that's sad. The ugly colored canaries. Um, okay, that makes sense. I'm convinced. It's interesting that many of the sources we saw in newspapers that discussed canaries and coal mines were usually concerned about the welfare of the birds. Dugald McIntyre wrote in the Scottish Dundee Courier that the mining birds were, quote, uniformly well cared for, end quote. However, he went on to say that, quote, good as is the treatment of those life-saving birds, it seems a queer thing that in this age of science, a proper hand instrument cannot be invented to take the place of the harmless and useful birds in testing the mines for gas. To see the birds go down on what is at present a necessary mission of mercy is pathetic, for the dark and gloomy pits are the very antithesis of the natural haunts of the joyous, sun-loving children of the air, end quote. Anecdotally, the birds were friends and companions of the miners. Not only did they save their lives, but they, like Seymour from our vignette at the top of the show, were in fact the miners' little buddies. Miners would whistle to the birds or feed them little treats before their shifts. And I totally get it. As I wrote this episode, um, I had my little parakeet in my office and we were talking back and forth. Um, he's, his name is Green Bean, and he's, so he's kind of like Groot because everything he says is Green Bean, Green Bean, Green Bean. So, so he's <laughs> chirping at me as I'm writing this episode about, bir- uh, you know, about these little birds. So I can totally see how having one of these little chirpy birds down in the mine with you could be a real uplifting thing. He's also like Pikachu, <laughs> or like yeah. Pikachu only says Pikachu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, Even after the birds were no longer in use, canaries held a special place in mining culture. 
In his mining memoir, David Coleman, the Eastwood pitman, mentions the tradition of keeping canaries at the pit in his book, A Nottinghamshire Pitman Story, writing, quote, As a tribute to the canary, every pit top near the colliery manager's office usually um, had an aviary full of canaries. Although they didn't use them much, they still kept them as a tradition. There was always somebody nominated to look after them. They saved many, many lives, end quote. Judging from archival photos, most canaries were taken into coal mines in a simple open-air cage. So if a canary was exposed to gases and became unconscious, unless it could be gotten out of the mine or to somewhere with better oxygen really quickly, it was possible that the bird could die. In 1914, a resuscitation cage for mine canaries was touted as a life-saving mechanism for mine canaries. The cage is made of solid metal with a glass window on three sides so that the canary is visible. A hatch door is located on the fourth side that can be opened or closed. Mesh wire covers the opening of the hatch so that the canary cannot escape. At the top of the cage is a small oxygen tank with a hand pump. If the canary were exposed to a high concentration of toxins in the air and passed out, it could be revived by closing the hatch and pumping oxygen into the sealed cage. Um, This was probably pretty pragmatic as much as it was about caring for the birds is my assumption. Um, You know, if you could resuscitate your animal, you wouldn't have to head all the way up to the surface for another one. Nevertheless, miners certainly felt affinity for the animals that were underground with them. Yeah, I'm sure it was kind of lonely and dark and sad down there, so it would be nice to have a cute little canary to be your friend. Little little tweety bird. In his study of Colorado mining, killing for coal, historian Thomas Andrews maintains that, quote, the miner's canary was usually a mouse, end quote, in Colorado mines. According to oral histories, some Colorado mines were filled with small rodents who had at some point hitched a ride into the depths in the oats and the hay that were taken down for the mules that would haul the loaded skips out of the mine. One miner fondly remembered the little mice friend saying, oh yeah, the little buggers knew their name. Little by little, you could just about feed them by hand, end quote. But the mice weren't just companions for miners. They function as sentinels for danger. Mice are also sensitive to carbon monoxide. If a miner noticed the mice acting weird, either scurrying at top speed because it detected a subtle vibration in the mine that humans can't, or if it was acting lethargic, the miner knew it was time to get out of there. The U.S. Bureau of Mines used canaries to test other safety hazards. In 1923, the Bureau released a study entitled Carbon Monoxide Hazards from House Heaters Burning Natural Gas. They were testing a variety of house heaters and the amount of carbon monoxide that they could emit into a family home. The study clearly used canaries as one part of the test. For example, one test result states... No odor of aldehydes, canary unaffected after three minutes exposure. Another result states, strong odor of aldehydes, canary unable to stand up after three minutes exposure. Aww. I know. (laughs) Unable to stand up, like, that's sad. Um, Now here's a fun fact that might surprise you. Canaries were actually used in mines in the UK as late as 1996, when legislation officially ordered miners to replace canaries with electronic carbon monoxide sensors known as electronic canaries. 
The process of phasing out mining canaries had begun in 1987. Miners lamented the replacement, with one saying, quote, There is something about hearing them singing when you start work that lifts the spirits. There's no doubt that collieries will be less colorful and quieter places without them, end quote. Others worried about the substitution in more practical terms. Batteries can fail. Canaries don't. But even if canaries aren't keeping coal miners company these days, we still have the good old canary in a coal mine figure of speech. Writing in the Wall Street Journal in 2014, linguist Ben Zimmer caustically wrote that the canary coal mine metaphor had seen better days, its health imperiled by overuse. A once lively figure of speech has been deadened into a cliché for any early warning signal. Nowadays, the idiom is so well known that the coal mine part can safely be dropped. Environmentalists, for instance, speak of climate canaries, natural phenomena that could signal disastrous climate changes in the future. It may be time, Zimmerman writes, to let the canary escape its metaphorical cage and fly free from the language. In the same article, Zimmer gives the earliest instance that canary in a coal mine was used as a figure of speech. In 1915, the Herald and News of Newberry, South Carolina, ran a circular for the Chautauqua Circuit. Based out of the Chautauqua Institute of Western New York, lecturers would travel the Lyceum Circuit across the country, giving these talks to the public. This particular 1915 circular stated, quote, A Chautauqua is to a town what a canary is to a coal mine. If the intellectual and moral atmosphere of this is such that a Chautauqua can't live in it, then we must change the atmosphere or get out. End quote. That's some high flute in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So there you go. Uh, I did a Google search on canary in a coal mine just to see how many hits would come up. And it was 2,780,000. And from a quick skim, it looks like most of those hits were using the phrase figuratively. I will say I also, in using the Google machine, found some beautiful canary in the coal mine tattoos. So that is a fun Google search. There was actually quite some some quite um, special ones. So that, that could be something Is that going to be your next one? Huh? Is that going to be your next tattoo? I thought about it, but then I was like, no, I don't want to be a, a minor poser. Like, <laughs> I'm no minor. minor. I can't. <laughs> you could be using it figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Who knows? So that's uh, that's it for today. I hope uh, something here piqued your interest. Please head over to our website at digpodcast.org for the show notes and bibliography. Um, have lots of these primary sources listed um, as well as some books that you can pick up, pick up if you're interested in learning more. And I'm just going to throw it out there again. The, the phenomenon of the canary in the cold mine, that specifically, I feel like there's a larger story there. And if somebody is looking for a dissertation um, topic and you're interested in, you know, the science uh, of the history of, of, of medicine and the history of science, like, I feel like there's something there for you. So I'm just going to throw that out. Yeah, because it does look like it was pretty difficult for you to find most you know very really there was almost none like really developed you know um sources about yeah it. most everything most here is from is is primary sources so yeah doing your own original research elizabeth garner Mazarek. Mm -hmm. well i'm using other people that found the stuff too so just just check out the the the, the blog or the website and you'll see everything i used yeah and the photos look really interesting 
So um, visit our website at daypodcast.org for transcripts and to see the, the video and images that we're posting along with this episode. And um, if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash digpodcast um, to learn more about how you can support us and keep the pod going. Bye. Bye. Full mind fairy. Wait, he how- said fairy. fairy. Okay. <laughs> Wanted to make sure you didn't just brush over that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. The term canary in a coal mine is ubiquitous. Uh, uh, I, I don't think I've talked at all today. Hang on. Rescuers were descend into the mine. Rescuers were descent. I keep saying were. Rescuers would descend into the mine carrying a canary. Okay, I, I have I have a voice about that. So hang on. As a safety precaution, capillaries are arranged perpendicular. <laughs> perpendicular. Um, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> no, I'm I'm, not, I'm gonna keep laughing about it. No odor of ad aldehydes. Coal miners company these days we still have the goal the u.s bureau of mines used canaries to test other safety oh i meant to fix this i was like what can i say besides other safety things (laughs) okay and then i was like oh i'll come back to it later hazards um hazards is that what you're talking okay thank you yes yet canaries have become ubiquitous with mining in general and as a figure of speech you use ubiquitous, ubiquitous, I think I use it like 17 times ubiquitous. in this episode. That was like my word ubiquitous. of the day. So feel um, free to, uh. Also, <laughs> there's a lot of um, sexual innuendo that's just all in here and I can't help but. How so? You say shaft like a million times and then you're like, big, hard, yellow suitcase. Oh, <laughs> so well, like it is called. The shaft. I know, I know. I was I was trying to use proper <laughs> I probably got it all wrong and somebody's gonna write us and be like, This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. No. I um, tried, man. <laughs>